We are uh, together in the book of Matthew today, so if you would turn to uh, Matthew chapter 2. If you are uh, new with us, our habit each week in terms of the message is to open to a paragraph in the Bible. Usually we're working our way paragraph by paragraph through a book and without uh, fanfare or uh, gimmicks to simply read that passage and then to try to explain um, its meaning. So these last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through Matthew 1, and now we'll look at 2, and then by the end of the year, we will have covered all the way through chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you, and we're on page 471 in those Bibles. Um, But first, before we read it, uh, by way of introduction... I am pleased to tell you this morning that I have a secret. Shh. Here it is. Scripturally, we could say that you are the image and the likeness of God. We could say that we are another way the universe is becoming conscious of itself. We could say that we are the infinite field of unfolding possibility. You are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being. You are all power. You are all wisdom. You are all intelligence. You are all perfection. You are all magnificence. You're the creator. And you are creating the creation of you on this planet. That's the secret. In you is all the creativity, power, and wisdom needed to make your life everything it's meant to be. Think your way into the best you. The universe is yours. All revolves around you. Does that sound right? It started pretty well. In her wildly popular book, The Secret, and its sequels, Rhonda Byrne asserts that those who have been happiest throughout the centuries have been people who knew that secret. Now, certainly she put it in a rather provocative way in her writing. And frankly, a lot of people bought it. 30 million, in fact. It's one of the most popular books written in the last 10 years. Now, certainly she put it in a provocative, telling way. But that, in fact, is a great representation of the wisdom of our day. Life is about You, if you focus on you, life will be the best it could possibly be. That's the secret. Now let's compare that with what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Follow along with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the Great... Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, 
saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star where it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. With the transition from Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 2, we have the transition from the pregnancy of Mary to Mary in her early days of motherhood. Exactly how much time has passed from Matthew 1 to Matthew 2 is impossible to say with exact certainty. But Mary is no longer single, nor is she pregnant. Jesus has been born. If you're new to the Bible and you're interested in the the actual circumstances around Jesus' birth and the events that led this family from their home to the city of Bethlehem, you could take one of these Bibles, and later today read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 2 gives uh, some detail that Matthew doesn't focus on. Here, the intent that Matthew gives is to sort of zoom in, if you would, to the variant reactions to the news of King Jesus' birth. If we were going to summarize this paragraph or these paragraphs that I just read in a sentence, we could say from the very infancy, Jesus, the true promised king, received both opposition and worship. From the very beginning, Jesus received both worship and opposition. Why? I'm glad you asked. Well, it's because Jesus, not Herod, not the wise men, Not Mary, not Joseph, not you, and not me. Jesus is the center of the universe. And that's no secret. You see, He is all power. He is all wisdom. He is all intelligence. He is all perfection. Is this sounding familiar? I'm taking that paragraph from her book, The Secret, and replacing it with truth. Jesus is magnificence. Jesus is creator. Jesus is God in the flesh. 
Those who come to see Jesus in this way respond in worship. Those who don't remain in a position of opposition to him. We'll uncover this this morning as we simply spend a few minutes together considering the characters of this great, important story and the different variant ways in which they respond to him. Let's first think together about the wise men. Maybe in verse 1, as you glance down at your translation, it uses the word magi. These men came to the city of Jerusalem looking for Jesus. Now, as is the case with every tradition that builds over time, there are in our habits, in our rhythms, in our traditions, both things that are true and things that are less than true. So imagine with me the nativity that you may have set up at your house and think about the wise men or the magi. How many are there? There's three. Now you'll notice as we read this text, it nowhere says there are three wise men, nor does it actually call them kings. These were not kings, and we don't know how many they were, but they did come, and what they did do is very significant for us today. And so if you could try to set the nativity aside and consider the actual significance, we would be well served. Magi, or wise men, were people who specialized in what we would call today a mixture of astrology and astronomy. These were not two different disciplines in the ancient world. They were one and the same. If you were a wise man or a magician, then you were known as someone who could interpret dreams, who could read the stars, who could tell what was going to happen based on what you saw in the sky. You were considered wise not because you were particularly well-learned in books, but because you were well-learned in reading the sign of the times and the stars. Very likely, these men were Persian. We know from ancient history that Persia was the country where this was the most popular. Now, isn't it interesting that this habit that some have today of reading their horoscope has in some way, shape, or form precedence 2,000 years ago. Somehow, these men discerned from the stars that a new king had been born. They traveled likely for weeks to find the kingly child and give him homage. Now, of course, this raises some rather bizarre questions about the stars, about horoscopes, about astrology, But certainly we can say that's beyond the point that Matthew is seeking to make. Or to say say that more directly, Matthew didn't include this detail in order to tell us, you too read the stars. You too can be a wise person. You too can discern your future and world significant moments by following the stars. That's not Matthew's point. Matthew includes this detail, though, to do something with it. I think perhaps what he's doing is he's telling us that God moves the cosmos to worship Christ. That the world itself, the created order of all that Jesus made, bent itself 
remember him. Now, notice in verse 3, who caught wind of their quest? Somebody named King Herod. We'll come back to him in a minute. He's going to play a significant role. But first, let's consider some of the significance of these magi. Friends, they came to worship Jesus. Jesus will be worshipped because Jesus, not me, and Jesus, not you, are the center of the universe. And this Jesus is the Savior for all kinds of people. Jesus is the Savior for Jews in Jerusalem and for pagan astrologers from Persia. And one day all people will see things as they actually are and worship Him rightly. Because King Jesus is the Savior for all peoples. I think about just our own context and the opportunities we have to share the gospel with various people. Jesus is the Savior for the visiting scholar from China and for the homeless man living on the streets of downtown Tempe. He's the Savior for the undocumented Hispanic and for the wealthy, educated Ph.D. He's the Savior for the Iranian engineering undergrad. He's the Savior for the single mom. Jesus is the Savior for all people. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. These magi came to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. But again, notice in verse 3, who caught wind of their quest. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We've considered the magi, or the wise men. Let's now think for a few minutes together about King Herod. In the first century, most of the known world was under the thumb of Rome. And their way of asserting dominance over the vast empire that they had was to put in place puppet kings who would rule in light of Rome's rule. Roughly 30 years before Jesus, before the events of Matthew chapter 2, King Herod had been put in place as the king of Judea by Roman appointment. Now, perhaps you didn't make the connection and it wasn't described for you in these details in school, but you've likely heard of King Herod from secular world history classes. This is the same Herod known as Herod the Great. King Herod is called Herod the Great due to the explosive amount of construction conducted during his lifetime. Impressive structures he had built in Jerusalem and throughout Israel still stand today. A few examples, he rebuilt the temple. He quite literally built a port city by pouring so much sand into the sea that a port was developed where there was not one before. Going to that port was the world's most famous ancient aqueduct. It's still there today. Perhaps most amazingly, he had a mountain built so that his palace would sit in the place of highest elevation outside the city of Jerusalem. 
All of this done without cranes, without bobcats, without any machinery. Hands and feet, shovels and eyesight. It's incredible. Herod was a brilliant visionary. He was also a brutal dictator. And despite being known today as Herod the Great, Herod was haunted by his own sense of a lack of greatness. Herod was overcome by paranoia. Herod would kill anyone who he perceived to be a threat to his rule. This included members of his own family. He killed his wife and two of his sons. This caused Caesar Augustus to famously say, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Now this Herod heard of people asking about a new king. And notice in your text, in your scriptures, his immediate response. It says he was troubled. This word trouble is an, is an intense word. It means to be stirred up by fear. Despite ruling over Jerusalem with an iron fist, Herod the Great felt vulnerable. His throne was threatened. Herod the Great reminds us of something extremely important, something we all need to hear. Whenever our idols are at risk, we will find ourselves deeply troubled. Whenever our idols are at risk, we will find ourselves deeply troubled. For Herod, this idol seems to have been retaining his his power, his authority. He had to have the throne regardless of the cost to him or anybody else. Now for us, none of us are sitting on actual thrones despite what we might think. However, it doesn't mean we're without idols. For you, maybe it's keeping your kids, quote, safe. Or maintaining that elusive 4.0. Maybe it's earning a six-figure salary or doing everything you can to make sure everybody around you is happy. Maybe it's being in a romantic relationship, whether that's working or not. Maybe it's having back your health. Friend, When we focus our lives around ourselves, our accomplishments, our identity, our magnificence, we will inevitably end up like Herod. We will end up troubled. We will end up terrified by the hint of our idols coming crashing down. Herod is a shocking, stark reminder that idols blind that idols fool, that idols lie, that idols cannot deliver what they promise. Now, Herod's response to his fear was twofold. In, chapter, uh, in verse 4, it says that he called together the religious experts of his day. And he asked them, where is this king to be born? Now, this is easy to pass by, but 
I think it's one of the most important moments in terms of understanding how your Bible works. It would be common today for somebody to say, you can't trust the Bible. It's contradictory, its parts don't go together, and it was written by people. You've likely heard all of those things if you've sought to share your faith. And yet, this is one of those moments when how the Bible actually works together gets unwrapped. It's the gift you weren't expecting and didn't know you needed. But notice that Herod, who wasn't a Jew, didn't actually follow the God of the Old Testament, was a pretender and an imposter, that he went to the religious authorities of his day to seek an answer to a biblical question. And most of the people who would have responded to him never themselves came to trust in Christ. And yet when they asked the question, where will the Messiah be born? When they were asked that question, what did they do? It's not a trick question, I promise. It's right there. They gave him an answer. They knew. How did they know? They knew their Old Testament. They understood the Old Testament to be pointing forward to a Messiah who would bring his kingdom. It's common today, particularly in secular academic circles, to say that the apostles did not, in fact, read the Bible rightly, that they read onto the Old Testament text things that weren't there, that they sort of just reached back and grabbed things and forced them to be read into their context. And yet here we have people who did not, in fact, bend the knee to Jesus, showing us how the Old Testament was read in its own day is an enormously significant passage. Friends, you can trust your Bible. Now, that was Herod's first move, was to seek what the religious authorities would say. But I won't read it, but you might just glance down to verse 8. His second mode of attack in terms of his fear was to lie to the Magi. He said to them, now, now you go, you go on, you find Jesus, and when you find him, send word to me. I too want to come back and worship Jesus. This is like the guy who wants to date the Christian girl, and so he comes along with her to church. He pretends to be interested. Herod had absolutely no intention of worshiping Jesus. We'll see next week that he, in fact, had something much more sinister planned. Friends, there is lots of disagreement about Jesus today. Did you know that? Many of us, as we gather with friends or family around the table Christmas Day, we'll be with people who we may be biologically very close to. But spiritually, we're on different planets. Despite the certain historicity of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, debate remains about Jesus. Just like it does in Matthew chapter 2. Herod 
disagrees. The wise men agree. But literally, consider this with me. Literally, we know more about Jesus with greater certainty than any other person of antiquity. There is no one even close. And yet, not all accept Jesus. Why? If you're a Christian, why have you trusted Christ, but others you love have not? Because you're smarter? Why? Friend, Herod's problem wasn't a lack of evidence. Herod lived among a people who all longed and expected that Jesus would come. Matthew 2, verse 6 is a quotation largely from Micah, verse 5. And Micah, chapter 5, is... But one tiny spot in a whole sea of Old Testament texts that tell us about Christ. With stunning precision, these passages give us exact details about Jesus. And yet Herod rejected him. Why? Well, the problem wasn't a lack of evidence. The problem is that Herod demanded to remain sovereign over his own little kingdom. He was blinded by his own unbelief. His idols held him captive. To put that a different way, people reject Jesus because they want to retain whatever else is more important to them. Today, just like in the first century, we reject Jesus because our hearts are darkened. We reject Jesus because... We cling to wanting to be in charge. We reject Jesus because we think our idols will give us what we really want. See, any time what we hold most precious to us is threatened, the instinctive response is fear. And that fear means that we will cling to those so-called little gods over the one true God. Friends, no one rejects Jesus for a lack of evidence. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, understand this to mean that it is not at all surprising to the rest of us that you would feel threatened by Jesus. Herod felt threatened by Jesus. But would you just suspend that judgment for a moment? Think about these questions. What if Jesus is better than anything you could ever imagine? What if your quest for life apart from Him is a dead end? What if releasing your stranglehold on control and submitting to this good King would yield for you more than you've ever hoped for? What if What Micah wrote, what Matthew wrote, what the wise men came to do, what hundreds of millions of people since then have found experientially. What if Jesus is in fact who he says he is? But Herod concealed 
his intent to kill Jesus, and he, he sent the wise men on their way. Now, why Bethlehem? Well, just for a moment, let's remember where we've been this year. We spent weeks and weeks together in the book of Ruth. Do you remember that in the city of Bethlehem is where Ruth and Boaz met? It's where they had a child. And it's eventually where King David was born. And it's where another king would be born, Jesus. And this city means house of bread. And Jesus would call himself the bread of life. The, the way in which the scriptures fit together to paint for us an ever-increasing, brilliant canvas of Christ is absolutely incredible. If you find yourself bored with the Bible, I want to encourage you, ask around. Sisters, ask an older Christian woman who knows her Bible well. Men, ask an older Christian man who knows his Bible well. Help me learn to see what you see. Because the Bible is meant to bring us into more and more love with Jesus. The wise men left Herod in Jerusalem, and they made their way to Bethlehem. And when they got there, the passage tells us they came with a great intensity of joy to worship Jesus. You'll glance down in your Bibles at verse 10, you'll see that rather clunky and awkwardly, Matthew tells us how much joy they had. Brothers and sisters, this joy the wise men experienced is the same joy we know as the people of God. You don't look like it at the moment, but there is great joy in Jesus. Right? Friends, when we consider who God is and how badly we have rebelled against Him, and yet the extent and the intent of His love, joy is the most appropriate response. Joy is the most fitting desire. Put that in a personal way, friends, I was a totally self-absorbed, despondent, unhappy teenager, and then Jesus saved me. Jesus put within a joy that I did not know. And certainly there have been ups and downs, hardships and trials, sufferings, and, and yet in the final analysis, there has been a joy that nothing could take. Because there is a Savior no one can snatch. Christian, would people who know you best think of you as a person of joy? Now, I'm not talking about introvert-extrovert. That's not the scale. The scale is melancholy and shackled to your condition or joyful and content in your position. Church, would, would we be people described as people of joy that's driven not by the daily condition of our lives, but our status as Christians forgiven, 
children of God adopted into his family. When we consider Jesus, does he bring a smile to our face? When we think about what God wants, do we find ourselves gritting our teeth in duty or sitting down on the inside in delight? King Jesus is one worthy of worship, not mainly a dutiful, begrudging worship, but an overflowing joy. Brothers and sisters, what Tempe needs is not more grumpy, uptight Christians. What Tempe needs is a people who, by the character of our lives, by the clarity of our witness, show a joy that nothing and no one else in this world can provide. The wise men came to Jesus with joy, and they fell down in worship. But then they got up, and notice that the passage says they got up in order to give gifts. This, of course, is where the, the idea that there were three wise men came from, because there are three gifts. But kids, aren't you glad that your parents don't give you one gift per parent? There's There's no actual evidence here that there were three men because there were three gifts. But the gifts are significant nonetheless. They're gifts not mainly given in order to assign some special symbolic significance to them. They're significant because they're gifts given befitting a king. Gold, for example is something still today we prize. We uh, wear it. We invest in it. It's what holds steady despite what Trump tweets. It It is one of the most prized objects still today. Frankincense and myrrh, on the other hand, we don't really often think of these. And yet, in the ancient world, these were extremely expensive spices. Their exceeding gladness in worship was matched only by the extravagance of their gifts. Brothers and sisters, every Sunday when the offering plate passes, is there an attendant joy as we put our gifts in? You see, the giving of financial gifts to King Jesus It's about far more important things than keeping the lights on. They're about ascribing to Jesus his worth in the extravagance of our gifts. Regardless of how much you have, when we give from the heart, when we give sacrificially, we give out of joyful worship to King Jesus. I pray as we end out this year and begin a new one that these magi would inspire us to greater generosity. Now this passage is one that no doubt if you have spent any time in the past around Christmas in church have heard. And yet it sets before us something so simple and clear and plain and helpful. 
Jesus will invoke two reactions. Some will oppose him, while others will worship. Friends, that isn't up for debate. It's true in this room. It's true in your neighborhood. It's true in your apartment complex. It's true in your family. It's true at your gym. It's true at work. It's true at school. Some bend the knee and worship in joy. Others remain blinded by their idols. From his very infancy, King Jesus attracted both worshipers and opposers. Let us be clear. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There is either an active worship of him or an active opposition to him. There is no middle way. But Jesus came that all who would turn from sin and turn to him would come to know a joy unshakable in the eternal, all-powerful God of the universe. You see, this Jesus is Jesus for all peoples. I love the way one author put it I read this week. The global purpose of God is the glad worship of Christ among all the peoples of the world. Isn't that good? The global purpose of God is the glad worship of Christ among all the peoples of the world. Friends, this is what fuels Church on Mill. This is why we exist, to proclaim Christ, particularly to people here in Tempe, but also, of course, abroad through our missions partnerships. But as we think about this passage today, maybe in a way that you did not intend when you came this morning. Would you contemplate, at present, am I one who is opposing Jesus? Or am I one who is in the right worship of this King? Friend, either way, the intent of that question is not to drum up some kind of self-motivation, but rather to say, this Jesus is alive and well. He's offering you himself. And if you will turn from a life without him to a life of submission to him, you will find a joy attendant to your heart that no circumstance can take. This is the message Christmas. May we be wise men and women. Let's pray.